I walked on set the first day of directing this movie with whatever 60 crew members and Oscar nominated, Golden Globe nominated Mm -hmm. actors and was just like, hi, I have the least amount of experience doing this than any of you. Like the PAs have more set experience. And like, thank you for trusting me and for trusting this vision and doing this. And also like, I'm not unapproachable. Good ideas come from anywhere. Also, if I'm like making something harder for you, let me know. This is all of our movie. We all have a hand on the wheel here. My job is not more important than your job. We're making a thing together and let's do it together. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Nicole Beckwith is a celebrated director, playwright, and more in Hollywood on Broadway. Her movie Stockholm, Pennsylvania premiered at Sundance, in which she directed Academy Award nominee Shirsha Ronan, as well as Cynthia Nixon of Sex and the City fame, who had just done well running for governor of New York. And of course, that one movie is just the tip of the iceberg. I approached Nicole not because of all that, but because she graduated from Sudbury Valley School. It's a different school than any that you've heard of. And as an educator, I'm fascinated by its success and more importantly, how it overturns my view of childhood and education and humanity. And not just childhood in general, but my childhood personally, I think it may have a similar effect with you. Nicole explains all about it in the conversation. Also, please click the link in the write-up to my blog post with all the links and video about self-directed learning, as well as my Inc. article about it. This episode is longer than most, in part because I believe that you will find self-directed learning as fascinating as I do. I recommend learning about self-directed learning and all it means as part of learning about yourself, about democracy, about many important things in life. Hello and welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek and I'm here with Nicole Beckwith. Nicole, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. And we were just talking before we turned the the microphone on. There are two big directions I could go with and I'm going to indulge myself and ask you about the education system that you went through. So people who read my blog will know that I've been enamored with the Sudbury model of the Sudbury Valley School model. And if you've never heard that before, I'll put links in this to read my stuff on it and then point to Peter Gray's stuff on it. And I learned about the style of education, which was very different than mine, very out there. And then I saw you speak about it and I read stuff. And so I'll have links for that. But I wonder if if you could share, and actually when I wrote you, I said, I'd love to learn more about this. And you're like, yeah, I love talking about it. (laughs) I wonder if, if it's not too broad a question, could you tell me about Sudbury Valley, I guess, how you began there. I read about it in the Boston Globe when I was in eighth grade, and I'd never had an easy time in public school, starting from first grade. Had a pretty rough go of it. 
And I read about the school and there's like these beautiful pictures of the campus. And it was just, the article was not unlike anything you would read about the school, basically. Like an overview and the self-directed learning and independent study and the students. In a second, we're going to describe what those things mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wanted to start like in meteorite, uh, in, in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I asked my parents, I was like, here's my dream school. And they were like, you've got to be joking. There's <laughs> no way we're going to send you here. Then I started high school shortly after that and was really dreading it and just really rebelled. I just was very, I was like, forget it. <laughs> from first grade to eighth grade or after the decision that they said, no, you can't do Sudbury? Well, from first grade to eighth grade, I did spend my fair amount of time in the principal's office and I <laughs> definitely wasn't a conformist by any means, but I was also quiet. I was more quiet. I just, you know, public school, in my experience, I don't know what it's like now, um, but in my experience was like really focused on a certain kind of mind and very focused on this kind of right way and wrong way to think and learn. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think or learn in those ways and was then continually being told that I was less than, that I was failing, that I was not a good student, that I was not smart. Mm -hmm. And deep inside myself, I knew that not to be true. And so... I just kept pushing, I just kept pushing against that system. And by the time I got to high school, I, my quiet, something just snapped in me when I started high school and was just like, forget it. I can't believe that this is what I'm stuck with. And my quietness and my introversion went away and I became a very loud kind of rebel against what I felt to be a very short-sighted and like detrimental mode of interacting with throwing minds. So you knew that there was something wrong, but you couldn't put your finger on it. And you knew like, I'm successful. I can do this. Not I can do that. Like I'm not a failure, but the system makes me feel that way. Yeah. I had like a very rich inner world and a very intense relationship to like my imagination or, and also of questioning things and curiosity. And I knew that those things were indicative of like an expansive relationship with the world and with a future and with myself, but because I wasn't good at taking tests or something, and I wasn't good at like just reading something and then knowing it somehow, being told that like those things, those other things didn't matter, felt insane to me and felt incongruous with being alive, kind of. And so I just became like a real challenger of every teacher I had. I decided to treat the system with it as much disregard as I felt it was treating me. So wow. I didn't care about going to classes. I didn't care about the authority of the teachers. I didn't care about the rules of the school. Principal, vice principal, none of that meant anything to me. Didn't care or like anti-cared? Anti-cared, mm -hmm. like really, really pushed it and really made sure everyone knew that I was like, this is all a farce. This is just wow. a hierarchy that was created by man and we're just following these rules blindly and it doesn't matter. None of this matters. And that like I live in a different mindset and that anyone could live, anyone, all of us like live in different mindsets. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like it just, yeah, it just felt insane to me and like alien. And so I just was very loud and very, very disruptive and was eventually, I can't remember, I guess it was partway through my sophomore year was 
suspended indefinitely wow. for whatever, a whole catalog of behavior written down by many teachers. <laughs> and then they said that I was also like a disruption to other students because my questioning and railing against the system inspired other children or students or whatever. Spartacus. Also <laughs> like dissent, basically, where people would be like, yeah, this is dumb. Like I can skip this class or like, yeah, I don't believe in this test either. So like, I'm not going to take it either. And um, they didn't like that at all. So they removed me from the equation, but I was only 15 then. Yeah. You know, one of the main things that drove me to teaching leadership was I'd learned, I took classes in leadership and it really came from watching Inside the Actor Studio. (laughs) And I took these classes in leadership and I learned, we did case studies and I read psychology papers and I'd write analytical papers and it didn't help me lead very, it didn't help me develop the social emotional skills within it or underlying it. And then I'm watching Inside the Actor Studio and I'm seeing social emotional skills like off the charts, like, you know, Al Pacino is like pretty good <laughs> at emoting and reading other people's emotions. And they're all dropouts. Yeah. I mean, like 75% or more never went to school. Or, you know, they left after high school or something like that. Or they have stories kind of like yours. Everyone's unique. And so I had to contrast what I'm seeing there with Ivy League business school professors who are like nowhere close, not even remotely in the same ballpark. And it one is like the pinnacle of our system. And the other one is left our system. And I was like, something's missing here. What's really strange is that like, you know, from kindergarten through fourth grade or whatever, it's like feelings, feelings. Let's learn about our feelings. Can you Mm -hmm. identify your feelings? How are you making your neighbor feel? And it's very much about feelings. Then you get into like middle school and high school and it's like your feelings don't matter. Mm -hmm. So forget all of that concentrating you did on your feelings. We don't care how you feel. We only care how you act. And they don't, like, nobody's even asking about why are you acting this way? Mm-hmm. What are you feeling that's making you act this way? Or, they just want you to act a certain way. Yeah, like, this is how quiet. We're telling you how to act. Do it. It's very strange. And then also, like, you know, I would argue middle school and high school are, like, some of the most emotional years of one's life. It's all so concentrated. And so it that also felt insane to me. Um, I was an actor during that time and working that way, so I had an outlet. For those things. I started taking like acting classes when I was 10, I think. And so I had a world where my feelings mattered and the exploration of that stuff mattered. And so then it also felt even more bizarre to me to then go back into a world where they were like, but it doesn't matter here mm-hmm. in the real world where you're being graded and evaluated and it's going on a permanent record. I felt strange that the only place where like creativity and feelings and relating to each other and connecting with each other mattered was this like after school island that was like a luxury or something that felt bizarre. It's hard for me not when I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm also translating, not translating, but putting what you're saying in the context of acting on your one's environmental values in the context of a system that is not particularly conducive to, it's just, everyone wants to buy stuff that gets thrown away really quick. So that's not what you're talking about. It's slightly different. I mean, it's just to recontextualize. For me, you know, John Dewey wrote this book, Democracy and Education. Hmm. I thought, it's not a bit much. Like, yeah, democracy is important. Education is important, but they don't, now I see them, it's like, I don't think you can have one without the other. And so from a leadership perspective, teaching people to conform and through coercion, which is how I view, I didn't think this when I was in school, but looking back now, I feel like that's what school is about, behavior-wise. It gives you this really interesting content, but it's kind of abstract. Well, I think, I mean, true leadership, right, is empowering the people around you. Mm -hmm. So that's the last thing we want to do in a 
for whatever reason, it felt like, you know, you're just not supposed to have any power. You're not supposed to have any power over your experience in school. You're not supposed to have any say in what's going on. It's just like, this is an education model that's been moving on blindly since the early 1900s or whenever. Peter Gray traces, he's like back to the church in Western Europe of like, who's allowed to learn and who's not allowed to learn. And yeah. Right. And so it's just like, just the mere act of questioning anything and to have someone be like, be quiet. That question doesn't matter. It's just Mm -hmm. like, what are you talking about? That question doesn't matter. And yeah, I mean, I just think like truly excellent leaders empower everyone around them to feel as though, and to take a risk to have a hand on the wheel. A leader is not someone doing the steering for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my public school experience was, was here, we're going to steer for you. And like, don't, not only don't ask questions, like don't even look where we're going. Just like trust that like where we're going to end up is where you're supposed to be. And this is the only way to get there. And it's just like, what? This is my life and the way that my, my relationship with the world is forming during this time. And I'm supposed to take that after I graduate from high school and like go out into the world with it. And like, I, I just don't understand how that's supposed to that kind of straight line, don't look where you're going, don't ask any questions, mentality and mode of operating is supposed to prepare you to be engaged with the world in a way that's like, whatever, all the cliches about going to college, it's like the freshman 15 or whatever. It's like, yeah, of course, everybody needs like an insane coping mechanism Uh for the fact that now that they're out in the world and making choices and asking questions after having come from a system that didn't allow for that. And you were rebelling, you weren't Correct me if I'm wrong. You weren't hurting people. You weren't hurting yourself. You were just like mm-hmm. pushing back. You're like, the system doesn't. I mean, I'm pretty sure I was like hurting some people's feelings, uh-huh. like hurting some teachers' feelings, probably, and definitely making it harder for them to do their jobs. And like, I like, I remember Stories, being in yes, like the yeah. photo class taking photography, and um, they give you a camera, and they're like, all right, here's your like artsy fartsy black and white film go out into the school for 40 minutes and take pictures and then we're going to develop this film into contact sheets and i remember that you know so i go out with the camera to take pictures of the school and i went to school in beautiful new england it's a gorgeous school building everything's brick and cobblestone and archways and dramatic ceilings pre-sebrae but the things that i was taking pictures of were like (laughs) a chain as thick as my arm wrapped four times around a door to the outside and padlocks a clogged toilet a pile of cigarettes and an overturned shopping cart under the bleachers like somebody crying in a hallway and then when the when we developed those pictures into the contact sheet, the teacher told me that I wasn't allowed to develop any of those photos, that I didn't follow the assignment. And I was like, what was the assignment? And like, I did follow the assignment, but they didn't approve of the pictures and they didn't approve of what I was saying in my photographs. And so he said that in order to learn to take the next step in the class and learn how to make prints, I had to print somebody else's photographs. And so I refused to do that. Uh And so then I then opted to just sit in the room while everyone else was in the dark room. So I was just sitting in the room by myself. And I remember eating like a tapioca pudding. Uh And then he came out for some reason, this photo teacher, and was like, you can't eat in here. And I was like, I can't take the class. I can't do this. And I was like, I'm going to eat in here. And he's like, you can't eat in here. And I said, fine. I took the pudding and I just went like, I just flung it at him Uh and it went from his glasses to his belt and then I was like goodbye and I left and I never went back to that class I was very angry (laughs) very angry but I mean it's infuriating it is infuriating they say take pictures of what you want to take pictures of and you want to express yourself and I'm reading something like you want me to take beautiful pictures but there's a world here that like it's I'm taking pictures of what I'm actually seeing yeah and they're and then they're like well that's not what's there yeah it is what's there and now you're telling me what's beautiful too? 
something like that? Or now you're telling me what my, what I express? Yeah. Like it's what we do to kids is like, so like they're not stupid or blind. Right. I mean, yeah, it's just strange. And I had a lot of like instances like, like that. I remember making like Valentine's Day. I made a Valentine's Day sucks shirt uh-uh. and wore it into school and it offended my biology teacher or whatever. And he's like, you have to take that shirt off. And I was like, I'm sorry, did you just tell me to take my shirt off? <laughs> um, and was really razzing him that way. And he's like, you know, go down to the principal's office. Yeah. And I so you're teaching me to be clever. <laughs> I go down to the principal's office or vice principal's office. And it's like, Mr. So-and-so is like all bummed on my shirt, but whatever. And the principal was like, yeah, that's offensive. You have to take it off. And it, this was during like this huge boom of mean people suck. Uh-huh shirts so people had the word suck on their shirts yeah. a lot. but valentine's day sucks they're like oh saint valentine like blah 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 and i was like well it's a home it's an invented hallmark holiday mm-hmm. number one number two like mean people suck shirts are everywhere there are a million mean people in this school uh-huh. <laughs> that are reading those shirts every day that, that and so that's not offensive like saint valentine is like nowhere to be seen and i still am not supposed to wear the shirt and he's like if you want to keep going to class you have to turn your shirt inside out and i was like i'm turning my i'm out of here and so i would just leave just like things like that happening all the time and i feel like you're can i share a story of mine from my childhood of please i could do this i could do plenty about school i think you read the, if you read the ink article you read about how i went back to my fifth grade teacher it was like <laughs> you're well, i haven't had one like you i completely forgot that i'd been so disruptive anyway at home we used to have chores and we used to have an allowance. And once my mom and stepfather got together and they said, we're going to connect these things. So each chore will have a money value attached to it. And the kids will get paid for their chores. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Then one time I decided I didn't want to do the chores. And I also didn't need the money. So I didn't do the chores. And so like, you got to do the chores. And I said, I don't want to. And they're like, well, you're not going to get paid. And I was like, fine. And then they're like, well, you got to do the chores. <laughs> and I was like, you made the system. You made the rules. I'm using, I'm following your rules. And now you're punishing me. Mm-hmm. And something that hit me in, in learning about Sudbury, I want to transition to Sudbury, is, is that we teach children the behavior is so authoritarian, opposite of democracy. And I never would have believed that little kids could, be part, could participate in democracy to the extent that they can, that I read about. I'm going to transition to Sudbury. Great. <laughs> so, okay, so you're rebelling and you find out about the school. You told your parents you want to go there, but they say, no, you can't. I burned every bridge. I made it impossible. So I got kicked out of public school, basically. And then my mom tried to homeschool me for like two seconds out of her <laughs> office. She was working as a, um, at a real estate officer, as a paralegal or something. And she couldn't keep tabs on me. And like, they just basically, they had nothing else to do. And then I was like, hey. Do you want to go to Sudbury or you want to try it out? Or do you want out of any system at all? No, I wanted to go to Sudbury. And and there were some kids that I knew in my town that were going there. A surprising number, actually, because we carpooled. We ended up carpooling. So there was like six of us or something, all different ages. But so I floated it to my parents. It's like, you know, it's a private school, but it's, I think at the time that I was there, it was like $4,500 a year. So really cheap, relatively speaking. Yeah, it's like just a private school so that they don't have to get state accredited. You know what I mean? It's like it wouldn't be a private school like if it didn't have to be a private school, basically. It was my understanding. Mm-hmm. So my family didn't have a lot of money, but that wasn't a lot of money mm-hmm. in terms of private school. So I, I burned all my bridges. I like made it impossible for me to do anything else. And then I revisited the topic with my parents who were then divorced in the middle of quite a 
spell. And as a last ditch effort, they were open to it. So we went, I did my interview, I did my visiting week and then was accepted or whatever. And this is, you had three years left of school? Technically two. Technically, I was like going for my junior and senior year. I got kicked out of school like halfway through my sophomore year and then did my visiting week and my interview all that year, but they didn't have any more slots for enrollment. I think when I first started, the cap was 200 students. And when I left, the cap was 215. But I did ultimately stay three years. What did you learn about it? What was the, what brought you to it? As opposed to, I want out of all school. You're like, I want that school. I mean, who wants out of all school? I mean, like who wants, I, I don't know. I wanted to be part of a community. I wanted to be around people who were like interested in things. And I was interested in things. And the school is just like a wonderland. It has. Yeah, what did you learn about it? From, before you went there, what was the appeal? Just like the the resources, the dark room, the dance studio, the pottery studio, the barn, like they just have everything you want. And then just reading about like staff being called staff instead of teachers, because by calling them teachers, it feels like they're the people who are going to teach you or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, just like the vocabulary around it, everybody being on a first name basis, the freedom of speech, the no age group separation, And the like voting, the fact that like a five-year-old has the same vote as the founder of the school Mm -hmm. is like, was mind blowing to me. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was really interested in. And by that time also, like I was assisting acting classes for younger kids in order as a trade so that I could take acting classes in the studio. In separate from school. Separate from school. And so I worked a lot with kids and really liked kids. And the idea of getting to go to a school where it's like all together was really a cool idea Mm -hmm. for me. And then the people that I knew that had been homeschooling and then when that school kind of came into like the greater awareness of that New England area, they stopped homeschooling and started going to that school. My friend Ariel, namely, was someone who had been, we never went to public school at the same time. She was homeschooling by the time I like ended up in public school. Then she started going to SVS and I was like, she was just so rad. She was like a radical thinker. We spent so much time together. We had a zine together. Like we were just really in sync and the idea, she was really loving it. And I knew that I would really love it too. So you're doing all this stuff. Like you're very active in doing things. You're teaching and rebelling and- (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was acting a lot too. Like even in my freshman year of high school and I was like full rebellion, I was in the production of Romeo and Juliet at the proscenium theater in my hometown that my school went to go see on a class trip. So I was like working professionally as an actor uh-huh. at the same time that I was like doing that stuff. So that's like another thing where it was like the school kept telling me that I was like a worthless failure <laughs> failure that's like lazy and not doing anything. And meanwhile, they're paying to come see you. Yeah. I know that there's a later thing where I think you, there's some stuff that happened. Well, let's get after. Supper. So what was it like when you began? Well, it was, I mean, it was just incredible. I Do you start in September or do you start I like started mid-year? in September of the following year. And there's still some vacation from Sudbury. Mm-hmm. So everyone came in at the same time. You were yeah. a new one. I know. We wish that there wasn't some vacation. We being Sudbury students. Yeah. Is students, is that the right word? Attendees yeah. or okay. students. I don't know, I guess. I mean, I drove, the drive was so long. I Like on a good traffic day, if you left at the right time, you could get there between 
like in 45 minutes to an hour and a half. But there were days where we would hit rush hour and it would take us four hours to get home or four hours oh. to get into school. It was really nuts. Was your mom or dad driving you home? No. We just, the student just carpooled with kids. Okay. So no, my parents would have never driven You were 16, me. or you were older than 16, so you could drive. I never drove. I think I was still 15 when I started there. Maybe I was 16. I don't remember. 16, I think. But I didn't drive. I never got my license. But other people did. My friend David drove. My friend Keb drove. So school continued after your, like there's still community in that car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we would just like, sometimes we would be really zonked. And sometimes we'd be really talkative. Sometimes when traffic was bad, we'd like stop and all have dinner together or whatever. Yeah. This is not what my school was like. (laughs) And it was just an incredible, it was an incredible experience. I think pretty quickly. And, you know, I was still a punk kid. Like I showed up fresh off my rebellion train or whatever. I had an eye ring. I smoked cigarettes. I had purple hair. I was like, you know, whatever. And I was still that. And I was very into writing. So I was doing a lot of writing myself. And I think I was, I like spent a lot of talking time, just like sitting around talking to people, drawing things, making things, and kind of like healing a wound basically that had been created through years of that stuff being kind of oppressed in my daily routine. So my first year, I spent a lot of time doing that. And I pretty quickly became an office brat, what we call an office brat, which is that I hung out in the main office all the time and talked to the staff. I really developed very close relationships with Mimsy Sadowski, Danny and Hannah Greenberg. So Greenberg, that's a founder, right? Yeah. So is Mimsy. Okay. They're founders. Those were my three like real deep loves, those guys, but everybody, but you know, (laughs) Mimsy and Danny are so funny. Mimsy is like, you know, I'm tall. She's tall. She's like a big personality. I was a big personality and I was really drawn to her immediately. And her name is Mimsy. And she had done my interview with Hannah and Hannah and Danny are just incredible. I mean, they're just incredible, but also I think because I hadn't had positive adult role models in my prior schooling experience at all across the board, I did in my acting classes, my theater classes. I'm still incredibly close with my two favorite teachers from that time who are now family to me. But otherwise, my parents were going through a divorce and I had just like this never ending resume of terrible adult role models. So I was very hungry for that, for engaged and inquisitive kind of nonconformist minds. I wanted to be able to see myself in a future, basically, and to change my idea of what growing up meant, which up until that point had been like, you're miserable. And You mean, from your perspective, adults were miserable? Adults were miserable and, and restricted in the way that they like engaged with the world and the people around them. With the exception of the acting teachers. And, yes. Yeah. So coming into Sudbury Valley, there was this office with like all this administrative stuff was happening and the school was being run out of this office and just their banter, the way they related to each other, the way they got along and also didn't get along sometimes, but still always very constructively. It was, that was like a huge thing for me. And so I spent a lot of time in the office more and more, which was, you know, the opposite as one would imagine. I went from being the kid where the vice principal was very literally chasing me down the street. He had my father on speed dial on the phone. It was like a very safe by the bell, like kind of rat-a-tat-tat between me and that vice principal. But then like going to Sudbury Valley, I, I just couldn't get enough of it. And so I sat in the office a lot and talked to those guys a lot and just kind of observed what was going on there. From your perspective, can you give an overview of Sudbury, how it works? What's like the principles it works by and how it, like, I know that there's, 
There's all this voting that you talked about. There's the judicial committee mm-hmm. and there's age mixing. Yeah. Well, so there's no age or class separation. It's just kind of a big house um, big in a state around. on Callahan State Park. And <clears throat> yeah, the only classes are the classes that you organize. So you can organize, like if you want to take biology or whatever, you figure out which of the staff members kind of specialize in biology. You talk to them about it and they're like, okay, well, do you know this, this, and this? Because these are things that you should know in order to learn to get to the place where you're thinking of. They come up with like a plan and then either it's something that's like better learned in a group or if you're up for it, totally viable thing to like delve into solo. And if it's like something that sh- that's better learned in a group, like I would then make a posting on the bulletin board. A literal bulletin board. A literal bulletin board. I don't know what they do now. <laughs> Back in the 90s, you make a sign and you put it on the bulletin board that's like, you know, biology 101 or whatever. And you're like, hey, it's Nicole and I want to take this class and Scott's going to teach it. And I'm looking, we're thinking that we'll meet in such and such room on the second floor on these days at this time, like who might be interested. And then people sign up and then you go around and talk to them and then you show up and you're like, Scott, got the class. This is what we want. And they're like, all right. And then you start doing it. And then if you don't show up for class, class doesn't show up for you the next time around. Yeah, Yeah, Scott's like, I'm busy. Other things I can be doing. Mm. So that's how it goes. I didn't do that. I was still teaching. I was still very active in theater outside of school. And I just did a lot of reading and a lot of writing. It's primarily... Solo your own thing. So other people are playing around and doing their thing and you're doing your thing. And then I And no one's saying like... They're like, just, you can, they're like, you have to show up in the morning and leave in the... There's a sign-in sheet because there's an attendance policy where if you're under 16, I think like the attendance policy shifts. If you're 16 or over and you've been at the school for more, for three years or more, the attendance policy doesn't apply to you. If you're younger than that or 16 and haven't been at the school for three years, you have to attend for five hours a day, but whatever five hours, that's up to you. Mm -hmm. But so you sign in with a time and out with a time. Again, it's like on our system, like nobody's, but Joni, Joni, who I love, who was also like kind of ran the art room. She was the attendance clerk and she would like chase you down. If like you forgot to sign in or something, she'd come find you and be like, oh, there you are. What time did you get in today? Cause you didn't sign in. Cause she's just trying to keep an accurate record and like keep Mm -hmm. tabs because also after a certain point, And I'm not exactly clear on this because I started the school at 16, so I could come and go as I wanted in terms of going to the state park and back, you know what I mean? Off-campus stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, like, if younger kids had to be with people or... I don't know, because I wasn't that young. So there are rules. There's tons of rules. People think of it as, like, a school with no rules. But I will say also, like, part of my becoming a full-on office brat was I became incredibly interested in the way the school was run. The other person that always was hanging out in the office was the school chairman, which is the highest office the school has. And it's always held by a student. It's held for the term of a full year. And I just got really, really into the way the school was run. And when I served on the judicial committee, because, like, There's a judicial committee instead of like a principal, basically. And so it's one student, like a group of five students, one from each age group, roughly, chosen at random. And you serve, I think, three months or maybe it's just a month. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I think it's one month. You serve one month on the JC and there's one staff member in the room that changes daily. And then there's two judicial committee clerk who are nominated. And I think they serve three month terms. And those are two students who run together. And um, you don't like campaign like I don't recall that. But 
at a school meeting. School meetings happen on Thursdays and it's the staff and the students. And you do every Thursday, there's a school meeting and you kind of go over the school business for the week. Like what happened in the JC, if people are making motions to start new committees, if committees want to use the kitchen to make frittatas, to sell, to raise money, to build a treehouse or whatever, you talk about all that stuff and approve everything because everything's permits. And this is like five-year-olds along with 16-year-olds along with grown adults. Yes. And so that that meeting happens in the dance studio. And so I just got really into school meeting and I got really into hanging around the office and I served on the JC and I was so psyched to be in the JC and see how the school was like really running and to also play a part in it because community meant so much to me. So upholding its like foundations and like helping it perpetuate onward in the healthiest possible way was like really gratifying for me. So after I served on JC, so like what happens, there's um complaint forms. We call it being brought up. If somebody brings you up, they've filled out a complaint form about you. And it's like, I guess it's kind of like filling out like a police report or something where you're like, this person took my lunch and this other person saw it. And it happened at this time in this room or whatever. And here are the people I saw in the area. And this is, they took my lunch and they said this and they were a real jerk. So then also it's like, I saw, or like, you can be like, I saw so-and-so running through the hallways and here are other people that saw it. And so then in the mornings at 11 a.m., the judicial committee meets and you take the folder from outside the door where it sits all the time where people can always go and get the papers and bring people up. And you go through all the things and you call in everyone, the person who was brought up, the person who brought them up, anyone named as witnesses, and you talk about the incident. Now, if a witness witnessed the event and also didn't bring them up, that's bad for them (laughs) because it's part of the responsibility of the community to, if you see something, say something basically before that was a thing. And so you question everyone who saw it and the people who are involved in the complaint and you write a report based like a more objective kind of like, this is what's going on report. That's not written from the perspective of the person slighted. Cause also a lot of times I'd bring you up about something, but you bring me up about like the same things. We, we have differing accounts of what's going on. So you write basically the report with the help of everyone in the room, you vote on the report to be like, this is what it is. And then you have them plead guilty or not guilty. And they sign if they plead not guilty, they go to trial and they can appoint their own lawyer or serve as their lawyer. And there's like a jury and it's like a whole thing. And you also talk about, it. yeah, it's not no rules. Yeah, this is very rules heavy. Very rules heavy. And then if they sign guilty, then you're like, okay, motions for sentences. And you're asking the room, like, what would an appropriate sentence be? And so like you get some ideas and then you vote on whatever sentences. And you're like, okay, you stole someone's lunch. Like you can't eat lunch in the room where everyone's eating lunch for four days or whatever. Like you can, or if it's running in rough housing, it's like, okay, you can't go upstairs for three days or you get trash duty or whatever it is. And you get a sentence and then you, you vote on the sentence and then the person signs the sentence. And then at the end of the judicial committee day, you post everything, everybody who's found guilty and not guilty of everything. So this is a heavy participatory democracy. Massively so. And I fell in love with it. You thrived with it because like- from the outside, someone who didn't get it would say it doesn't make any sense at all because she hates school. And now when she gets the ch- first chance she gets, she participates even more. Well, I was judicial committee clerk after that. So I got nominated to be judicial committee clerk. And then amazingly, there was a truly 
massive case my first day as JC clerk. And I was, I served with my friend, Eric, and it was like a big community norms thing, like whatever. It was a big to do. And ultimately we had to call a special school meeting that took place in the, a special school meeting happens. Like the JC can sentence someone to a suspended suspension, which is basically just a parent teacher meeting. And I say parent teacher meeting because that's the lingo everyone knows. But in reality, it would be like a parent meeting with me. Your parent meeting with you? No. Like your parent. I'd be like, well, Josh has really been running and roughhousing a lot. Here are these things. Like we've been trying to figure it out and it's just too much. So like that's a suspended suspension. And then a suspension is anywhere from one to however many days out of school, which also comes with a meeting. But the JC can't do that. In order to do anything above a suspended suspension or above any sentence over five days, like I can't sentence you to trash for six days. I could only sentence you to trash for five days. But if I felt like, if we as a whole felt like it needed to be more serious than that, we refer you to the school meeting. And so then the the school meeting happens in that dance studio. And part of what we're talking about is, okay, this happened. Here's my recommendation. I think Josh needs two weeks of trash because he's really not getting it Mm -hmm. and blah, blah. And let's like, and and we're engaging with you and talking about it as we're going. And then the whole school vote on what happens. And then we post those sentences or you go, we had a special school meeting. I remember after these community norms charges or whatever that day or the next day. And I remember it being in the barn and I remember being really big. And I remember standing up and reading the report that we had landed on where everybody had signed it. And it was my friends, like my good friends that had, had these charges. And I moved for them to be expelled. That's wow. what I, I moved that one of them be expelled and the other one be suspended indefinitely. And I was crying while I did it, but I really did just think that it was the best thing. Not out of vengeance, not your friends, not out of protection. Or, like you were, I remember reading a quote of yours after rebelling, you come in you rebelling against something you have no say in. And then when you have a say in things, the rules make sense. Yeah. Can you put that in your words? Well, yeah. I mean, like rebelling against something you don't understand and trying to understand it, basically. It's like, I can't understand this thing. So like, let me break it mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I can look at all the parts and like figure out how to like function and in this world. But at Sudbury Valley, it's like you just, you're led into every single piece of what's going on and you see that it all makes sense and that it's all vital to the survival of the community, which is a meaningful community for you. And also it's just this thing of like, you want someone to be responsible, give them responsibility. Let them opt into something that actually means something to them. I mean, my parents, of course, didn't know any of this was going on, but then like fast forward three years or whatever at my thesis defense, like just learning that, And I served multiple terms as J.C. Clark. I think I served three consecutive terms because there was like a rash of rebellion or whatever after those expulsions. And whatever, it was very trial by fire. I was thrown into very complicated cases right off the bat as judicial committee clerk and and was really very dedicated to it. And J.C. starts at 11 a.m. every day. And there are days that I would be just doing that until 5 p.m. And then I would have meeting with a parent after that was suspension meeting or something from like 5.30 to 7 or whatever. And I would sleep in Framingham at a friend's house or a staff member's house because I couldn't because the carpool had to leave without me. I was just like very into it. I was very dedicated to it and learned so much. But it was very meaningful to me that the school community continue on in a way that benefited everyone because 
everybody mattered. And you could see that. And you could see that all of the rules and all of the ways that the school worked fit together in a certain way. And that if something looked broken to you or seemed unfair or superfluous, you had the opportunity to change it. All you had to do was make a motion or petition to the school meeting to open that up and talk about it, talk about the process and have it changed. What happens if it, now the system, correct me if I'm wrong, my view is that the system's always going to have things in it that you don't like, Mm -hmm. but I mean, the vote goes the other way. So how do you feel about things that don't work that way? The vote goes the other way. It's the majority vote and it's the vote of the community. And so it's like, okay, well, we don't all feel that way. This is working for most people. Okay, so it's working for most people. So it's... The people mean something to you. It's also kind of this thing of like, what is it? Like the human brain, like we're really only meant to know like 250 people. Or the Dunbar number. Yeah, whatever that is. And so that is very much in play at the school because like you see everyone's faces and even if you don't talk to them and you don't know them and they're not someone that you have lunch with, they're like, you know, because there's separation of interest like there's in any school. There's the barn kids. There's the office brats. There's uh-huh. like, you know, the kids that always hang around in the sewing room all day. There's the quiet room kids. There's the people playing magic. It's like, you know. That exists in every environment. And so, like, even if you're not close with someone and you're not, like, friends with them or whatever, you see their face and their experience means something to you. They're part of your community. You see them every day. And um, whether it's from a distance or not. And so whether if something's not working for them, it matters to you. If something's working for them, it matters to you. I really want to ask if that—I'm going to leave this till later if we get to it. But does that affect you today— because there's certainly lots of groups, and I think most people characterize our country as pretty polarized right now. So there's going to be a lot of people that we disagree with. And I wonder if, if that lingers with you today, if there are groups that you do empathize with groups more as a result of your experience than you might have otherwise. Well, the world's so isolated now. I mean, yes, but like it's also like different because we don't, we barely even see anyone's face. We're like yeah. looking at our phones all the time. And that's like a certain kind of connectivity, but not. And I don't know, I'm a writer. I, I mostly work by myself. I'm like in a TV writer's room now. So I see the same like six people every day. Like that's a thing. And some of us get along, some of us don't, but we like all function and we all care about each other. Everybody's experience means something to each other because we're like in that room and like seeing each other every day, whether we would choose to hang out outside of work or not is relevant for this like satellite community. But I mean, I just think like communication is key, like just being able to like hear people out. And so like even there are lots of people in that school, in life and wherever, where I like disagreed with Mm -hmm. what they thought. My friend Jasper, I mean, we carpooled together, Jasper March. We like got along, I guess, but not all the time. And like we would argue and carpool a lot. And we were just very different people. We were both from your report. He's a very kind, wonderful person. But I remember he was like his thesis, he wanted to go into like boat building. And I remember just being like listening to him and being at his thesis defense and then ultimately being like, I'm not the best judge of whether or not he's ready to go into boat building. So I like abstained from voting yes or no on his thesis for some reason. Because I I don't remember, I can't like recall now, but I remember sitting there thinking, of course, I was like 17 at the time and really listening and knowing him, but being like, and we had a lot of differences, but I was just like, yeah, I don't know. Those differences don't mean that he's not ready to do what he set out to do. But like, I actually recuse myself of this responsibility because like, I don't know if I'm making the best if I would be making the best call. So I'm just not going to vote. And you just have to like think about that all the time and just know when, like, even in this, so I was just like voting 
now, like, they had this big, like, daylight savings vote here about, like, whether to get rid of daylight savings or not. And I was California here today. Yeah. And I, like, obscene from it because I was like, that's some, like, God stuff. And then, like, that's, like, the sun rises and sets. But also, like, the people who had a lot of concerns about it were people who had children of school age and it's, like, starting school at, like, a certain time of darkness. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. Mm. So, like, who am I to say, like, Maybe I would feel differently if I was in there. So I, like, didn't vote. I, like, recused myself from that vote. And so it's also just about that awareness. Like, what makes anyone feel like if you can't wrap your mind around same-sex marriage or something, but, like, it has no bearing on your life, then, like, just recuse yourself from that vote. There's no reason to be like, no. So it's, like, also that mentality of understanding that, like, if you can't fit, if, like, some community doesn't make any sense to you, then don't try to force your beliefs and feelings on that community. I don't know. And I think that's what you were rebelling against. It's like being forced, things being forced on you. Mm-hmm. And that's people push back on that. And well, I want to go back to what you're talking about seems like useful stuff to learn in life. Yeah. <laughs> so how does it look to you, people who you didn't take any AP classes, you weren't working on your GPA for whatever. And meanwhile, that's the motion. I mean, I feel like it's more and more and more all the time of stay in school, longer hours, more testing, more preparation for tests and things like that. If I were a parent, I would be, when I first heard about Sudbury, if I were a parent, I would think, but my kid's not going to learn what my kid needs to learn to succeed in society. And there's you and there's one other whose name I don't remember if I got, who got, okay, I have a PhD in physics. I started, when I started college, I'd been picked on enough for being good in science and math before that I like kept away from it. And then eventually my second semester senior year, I started majoring in physics. So a lot of physics majors know in high school that it's going to be physics. It's rare that someone doesn't like leaves and comes back. So I'm taking classes with freshmen who are advanced ahead of me. And so I got to catch up and catch up. And it feels to me like a subject that is cumulative. If I miss a couple classes, a couple sessions of a class, I might not be able to catch up in that class. And if I don't catch up in that class, I might not be able to catch up to the next class and so on and so on. So I was, I felt like I was on like a bucking Bronco. If I let go for a second, I might fall off and never be able to get back on again. Mm-hmm. I still felt that way. And so like when I finished, when I graduated and I finished the major, I got into a grad school, a really top grad school. I was like, I did it. I made it. And meanwhile, there's a student who was at Sudbury. I don't know if you know the guy. And he ended up getting a PhD in math at MIT. As far as I know, took no math classes. Mm-hmm. Well, he must have taken math classes. Maybe he took some. I mean, I don't know how, there were no formal classes that he was forced to take. No, not at all. No one's forced to do anything. But he did that. He studied that. Whether he did it independently, I'm sure he had, like, you know, a staff member helping him out. I think he left academia for a while and kind of came back into it. I mean, this is what really threw me for a loop and forced me to think a lot. I mean, the thing about your experience of rebelling reminding me of my experience of rebelling that I'd forgotten about. And his experience not having a bucking Bronco that I realized you don't have to learn all of physics up to a certain point. You just have to learn how to look at nature and solve problems. In fact, it made me look back and wonder how much of my physics education was really what I would call science as opposed to learning how to do things. Well, there's two things about that. Well, one is I did have friends that took classes or whatever, like studied actual subjects. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's like they would do two years worth of public school work in one year of mm-hmm. SVS because like you're working at your own pace. You're not working in like 
these restrictive settings where it's like, this is what we learned today and this is what we learned tomorrow. It's like, oh, if you get that and you're excelling at that, then you're moving at that pace. Mm-hmm. And then like, oh, this is a little tougher to wrap your mind around. So we're going at this pace. And so it's just different. And so there is also a world in which I don't know who the person is, but that they were just like blasting through those classes. Uh, so you don't have to be a prodigy. You just don't have to be stuck in something that's designed for everybody, even people who don't freaking care about that thing. Yeah. And I always say that the most valuable thing you learn at SVS is you learn how to learn. And like the other thing that's really detrimental about the way that school is set up now is that like you show up to school and you sit down in the classroom and you learn and you learn and you learn and then the bell rings and then you're done for the day and then you go out into the world and it's like, oh, finally, this is me time or whatever after you're done with your homework. But what SVS is all about, like learning, it's just about like how to be in the world, how to be engaged in the community and how for that to be learning all the time. You know, like a lot of my learning was done just laying around on some couches with people talking. Mm -hmm. I spent countless hours doing that. And you could walk through and just look at that, like playing cards or whatever, and look at that and just be like, oh my God, what? Like these kids are not doing anything, but that's not true at all. We were learning quite a bit about like the world and how to look at things and what is interesting to us and how to shift perspective and how to communicate with someone that sees things differently from you and then how to like look at things from their point of view and then how does that shift your relationship to the thing that you were just thinking about and how to articulate that, how to communicate, how to let someone in, how to keep things out, like just like endless learning. It's funny because listening to the words, it has some meaning, but a meaning that came from adult life. And from my perspective, you can't teach that except through going through conflict and resolving it. And it, you can't teach that into someone. There's no amount of lecture, reading, testing that can... No, not at all. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole world full of mostly people who never learn that. And I mean, now you see things of like problems happen. And the first thing they do is they go to the authorities and they'll sue or they'll protest in some way that is not resolving things. It's just venting or trying to have authority over someone else. And as someone who's leadership being so fascinating to me and so useful, I don't see how I'm just uh, editorializing here, but I don't see how you can teach it any other way. And I don't see how you can squash it any better than to just force people into an authoritarian. And I use it deliberately. I mean, it's, you must do what you're told under threat of violence. I, mean, I guess it's not really violence. I mean, I, I would get spanked up to a certain age. Yeah, I mean, like, but, I don't know, some schools, lawyers, uh, rulers on the... Yeah, actually, my friend was, went to Catholic school, and he was like, yeah, my knuckles got hit a lot. Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, I got hit by a teacher in the back of the head, my penmanship teacher. It's just like, whoosh. I mean, she wasn't supposed to, mm. but that's what she did. She hated my handwriting so much. But emotional violence is real. And I, like, again, like I used to have a teacher that back when I was quiet, I made to give oral reports. She couldn't hear me or whatever because I talked too quiet. And then mm-hmm. she would make me stand in the back of the room so that I had to like project to the front of the room. And I just couldn't do it. So I would just be crying and she would just be like louder. And it's like, how is this? How is this teaching? How what, is this? The, what part of life does this? Yeah. And like what? All it did was make me angry. And it was up to me to find positive things to do with that. Which I guess you can learn, but who wants a world in which the, what, like, what you learn is how not to feel horrible when people make your life horrible. 
because they have some authority over you. I mean, I felt horrible all the time. I, I mean, for all my rebelling and stuff, I also like went to the bathroom and cried a lot. And I yelled a lot. I banged on things a lot. I mean, I would light a cigarette in the middle of the hallway and smoke a cigarette just in the hallway. Like just angry, just wanting to make people angry the way that I was angry. And that's not okay. I mean, I was like, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't also have that art world and the theater classes. And I did have, there were a couple teachers at the public school, like the Debbie Zabo, who would let me hang out in her senior creative writing class, like sit in the back and just listen to her class, like instead of going to the stupid classes that I was skipping or whatever. Mm-hmm. Myron Moss would do like same things. He's an English teacher. And Miss Laganis, Evangeline Laganis was the art teacher and she was crazy. And she used to hide me out in that room as much as I wanted. She knew I was skipping other classes. She knew, but she thought, you know, it's better that she be in here and be making something with her hands than it is for her to be outside smoking cigarettes and whatever, getting a stick and poke tattoo, whatever they like worry I was doing. So there were, there are, you know, there's excellent people everywhere. And I was lucky that I could kind of fish them out of that experience. But by and large, it was like, it was like really um, an emotionally volatile and terrible place. And then, you know, go to Cerebral Valley. Like my parents, you could have knocked them over with a feather when like they were at my thesis defense. And basically everyone's like, so you spend a lot of time in the office. Like you're an office brat and like blah, blah, blah. And like you've served three terms as the judicial committee clerk. And like, can you talk about like blah, blah, blah. My parents were like, what on earth is anyone talking about? Because I didn't talk about it when I would get home. Mm-hmm. I was tired. This is so, it is incredible. And all, the rebelling that you talk about sounds like what's happening in our world today. There's a lot of rebelling because people are, I, I'm reading, I mean, you're saying what you're saying. I'm thinking it's like making me think of, I don't know, some speaker will come to campus and then they'll protest it and they'll be like, sometimes there's violence. This is in today's world. I feel like it's what you were doing. And if you're in a system where you don't feel like you have a say, you speak out, you thrash out however you can. And it feels like that's what's happening. Well, also, like, whatever, we're living with a system that, like, we don't understand anymore. It's old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like the Electoral College is an ancient, stupid thing that's it's not functioning it's not serving us and so like just right there and then it's like let's get rid of the electoral college and it's like we can't it's like why next topic like yeah. and so if this was happening at Sudbury Valley you talk about it until you solve it you know what I mean like you figure it out it's like okay this isn't working for everyone how can we amend it so that it is working yeah, and there's transparency we just don't have that I mean there's no transparency and like the way commercialism and commerce and the one percent kind of if I want to change something in today's world I have to devote my entire life to it maybe in some future lifetime like if I, if I want to change the electoral college then someone's gonna to have to make that their whole life and they're gonna to have to get a whole bunch of other people to make their whole lives for uh, I don't want to get into that. All right. I, I want to switch to something else that I really want to ask about Eric Bogosian. And I want to ask about a whole bunch of other things, but I think that might have to be later to talk because I think, but I really want to, so now you're a professional playwright, director. I mean, you've succeeded in our world. Yeah. I mean, Sundance and. Yeah. And it's really, it's all like, I really credit so much, if not all of it to the Sudbury Valley and to the people that I was, I took those acting classes and you report and worked in theater the whole time that I was in school. And with the exception of when I stopped being judicial committee clerk, then I was 
exempt from the attendance policy. And so I'd used my freedom and leeway there to do more theater outside of the school. And also my final year at SVS, I decided to stay on an extra year because the better part of like a year and a half was spent on the JC. Is there more like knock, parents knocked over with a feather? Like, she wants more school? <laughs> yeah, they're like, what? Um, yeah. And so I wanted, and I knew that I wasn't going to go to college afterwards. And so I just wanted to just spend an, a final year at school chilling, right, doing my own thing. So you, you don't have a college degree. No. You don't even have a high school degree. Well, I have and, a high school diploma. I mean, it's it's like, um, yeah, it's like a, a different kind. It's not what... It's it not looks the same. The same. Oh, it looks the same. It looks, it's exactly the same. People only understand... If they ask for a transcript to go with your high school it's complicated. diploma, I'm like, oh, I don't have transcripts. So you give them a letter on why you don't have transcripts. And they're like, what? And then you can get into the whole... I mean, that's like a thousand years away from like yeah. where I am. I'm not... No, no one's going to ever ask for my... You have like a non, very non-standard education. You're doing just fine. You're doing... I, I mean, you're doing better than fine. There are a lot of directors who would like to be where you are. I mean, yeah, and in TV writers' rooms and in all the playwriting groups, most of the time I'm with people who went to Ivy League schools and came out of grad programs at, like, Harvard and Yale and Brown for writing. And I didn't do any of that. I went to Sudbury Valley. <laughs> the first post I wrote on my blog about this was, like, mind-blowing. I think it was, like, mind-blowing education practices that work. And now I'm thinking more of how this could apply. The same principles are missing from regular world. I mean, not, you know, outside of school world. It's taking a lot to get through. Like, I don't know how people listening to this are processing it. It's fascinating. It's intriguing. It's inspiring. I'm also kind of curious if there's problems with it that could be fixed or if like, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it like the recently converted or something. I'm like seeing all the, this awesome stuff. I think when you're dealing with like self-directed learning and like independent and when, again, the schools run on a democracy, as problems come up, you fix them. And if there are holes in your education, you put them there. So it's one of those things. It's not the institution. It's the way that you use the institution. Dealing with the consequences of your actions, not just the ones you want, but the ones you don't want. That's what, that doesn't happen in school. There are no decisions that you make. I mean, you, you write the paper. It's how you write the paper. So you make it judged on that. But not, is this class important? It, it, you don't express your values. Well, to graduate, you write a, the, a thesis. You do a yeah. thesis defense. Yeah. I mean, Instead like of just schools. getting like, like, oh, cool. Like, had I graduated from public school, it would have just been like, she scraped by on D's or whatever. <laughs> and here's your diploma. And then it said Valley. You write a whole thesis about the ways you've taken control of your education to prepare yourself to be a responsible member of the community at large. It sounds so much more meaningful, although if I hadn't researched it, I would have been like, sounds kind of frou-frou. It's not. And then you do like a thesis defense where like parents and public members of the assembly and the staff and the students, they all come and they ask you questions for like an hour and a half. And then they vote. There's two or three votes before you get your diploma. Now, when I was watching... So one of the things you did was called, as in a, recently, I guess a couple of years ago, was uh, Stockholm, Pennsylvania. And the main character, it's kind of, I don't want to read into it. Like, I know two things about you. I know this film <laughs> and I know your education. And so it's hard not to look at the Leanne Leah, Leah character and be like, this, she was like stuck in a system that was saying it was helping her and, it was kind of, and she couldn't quite get out of it. And then she has trouble with the regular world. Uh, it, it was hard not to see 
oh, that's like a lot of the educational system. Sudbury seemed, it's not like it's obvious how it all fits together, but it seemed like there's a lot of it. Am I reading I mean, too much into it? I don't know that the movie is so, it's like my deep psychology. Like there are things that I didn't even realize about the movie until I was like doing sound and you have to like loop a piece of dialogue or a line of dialogue, like, and you're just hearing it over and over and over and over and over and over while you like adjust the sound, the background mm-hmm. sound on it. And it's not till I was like bombarded with hearing certain lines over and over. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> like that's what that means. Cry, cry, cry. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, yeah, the, that, I don't know that story. I don't think about what I'm writing while I'm writing it. Now I'm not like, oh, and this symbolizes this. I don't do any of that. It's mm-hmm. just a whatever's ready psychologically to like come out of that rock tumbler. But I'm sure it's all very connected and my family stuff is all very connected and the way that I related to my community is all very connected and my work with Eric all very connected to that. You know, I think when I, like the movie, before the movie was a movie, it was a play. And I remember my dad going to see it the reading of it and really relating to Glenn, the dad, and just being like, oh, Glenn, like really feeling Glenn. And then talking to Eric and he was like, God, that Ben character, really feeling Ben. And it's like, right, you're the guy who like plucked me from my hometown and I went and worked with you in New York and like all these years, you know. And so it's funny. It's like that's and who like met me where I was and understood me on my level and like taught me how to be a writer, basically. So it's just funny, you know, it's all in there. It's everything. Everything's in there. That's like a lot of stuff. It reminds me of an interview I saw. Actually, I think it was on Inside the Actor's Suite of Dustin Hoffman. And I don't remember the question, but he was like, yeah, that's why I worked on Death of a Salesman so much was because my relationship was my thought. And like suddenly he gets choked up like immediately. And it was very personal. And I, you know, after that Inside the Actor's Studio stuff, for me, uh, watching, seeing that contrast between the expressiveness and the ability to read and all this that the actors got, then I took these Meisner Technique classes and the honesty and the openness and the expressiveness that came out, like in, in business school, this is after business, in business school, I learned the principles of emotions and I became aware of, you know, in physics, you don't learn a whole lot about your, to read your emotional state. You learn <laughs> electrons, the state of the electron. <laughs> and so I started being aware of these things and I said, oh, this is very important. And then I had to learn, you know, act, you don't pay to watch actors feel emotions without expressing them. They have to express it. And I started expressing stuff for the first time and I was like, this is really, and then you can start reading it from others. And I'm far from the level of the people on inside the actor's studio, but it certainly became important. And I think a critical part of leadership. So I look at the people who become getting into leadership roles, emerging from a system. I don't know where to, I didn't go to Andover or Exeter. Maybe it's different there. Maybe they have, there's a lot of people in, in like positions of, of authority in government, say, and CEOs and stuff that came from the Ivy League schools. And a lot of them came from the, the feeder schools and like the Choats and stuff like that. Maybe these other schools taught in a way that my public school didn't. And they got something that's valuable, like the stuff you've been talking about. But I think probably the overwhelming majority went through a coercive system. And now you can use my loaded language. Sorry if, if I'm revealing some biases that I've developed, but they go through a coercive system that doesn't give them the chance to explore their values and resolve conflict. It's, it's resolved for them by a school that tells them how it's supposed to work. And is it any wonder that we get a system that keeps, and also the, the system, there's this pattern that I see in life in a few places. An arch, there's an over there, over the window, like an arch works when you put pressure on it. If you don't put pressure on it, if you support it from below, it actually becomes weaker. Mm-hmm. And if you support it from below and you see it getting weaker and you think the solution is to support it more, exacerbates the problem. And so a lot of times, if you think accountability is the essential element of education or is the essential way to manage anyone, including educators, then you give them more accountability and you say more testing. And if that doesn't work, then actually that can exacerbate the problem because now the students are learning less. Of, of, I mean, they may be learning more facts, but they're not maturing. And so you say, well, more testing. 
And you can get in the cycle more and more and more of what's causing the problem. And it's weird to think, maybe not weird to you, it probably still is weird to you, to go the opposite direction full on to take away, put pressure on the arch. Let the student play with sharp objects. Yeah, it's not weird to me at all. It's very natural. I mean, because I was lucky enough to get to exercise that part of my mind and way of being, you know. It also, like, I don't think that I would... I have a kind of fearlessness about doing things. Yeah, the, the idea that, like, you have to... That you can't learn from experience is also like rough where it's like, learn all the things that you can learn about a thing and then maybe you're qualified to do it. Mm. But in reality, like the only things I'm qualified to do, like I never actually formally studied. That resonant, a lot of my students in my leadership courses say, I thought the way to become a leader was you just become better and better and better at something until you're the best. Like in sports, oftentimes the captain of the team, when kids just are playing sports, the captain of the team is the, is the one who's the best on the team. That doesn't mean they're the best leader. Mm-mm. It just means that they, maybe they're faster. Well, when I directed Stockholm, I wrote it and directed it. And um, I'd never directed a movie before. I'd never directed a play before. Mm-hmm. I'd never directed anything before. But I knew, like, this is my story. This is my script. And I have to be the person that brings it to life. I didn't want to hand it over. And then I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. And so, like, I walked on set the first day of directing this movie with 60 crew members and Oscar-nominated, Golden Globe-nominated mm-hmm. actors and stuff and was just like, hi, I have the least amount of experience doing this than any of you. Like, the PAs have more set experience. And, like, thank you for trusting me and for trusting this vision and doing this. And also, like, I'm not unapproachable. Like, a good ideas come from anywhere. Also, if I'm, like, making something harder for you, let me know. I want... This is all of our movie. We all have a hand on the wheel here. My job is not more important than your job. So like we're making a thing together and let's do it together. And I want everyone to be happy and I want everyone to feel connected and engaged with what they're doing. And I also want you to know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't done this before and I'm not going to pretend that I do, but like, I know the story and I know the characters and I know what I want. Those are the things that I do know. And like, I want us all to get there together. Just this idea that like, I'm more important than the gaffer or something is so silly and stupid to me. It's not, it's like, the like, I actually, like a director means nothing. If you don't have all of the people that are experts in their field that are helping you do this thing. So it's just like hiring was the most important thing I did as a director, hiring the people that came in and worked together so wonderfully and made the experience amazing. And I love everyone that I worked with and really don't consider them not like my movie, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's our movie. We made it together. And that was the thing for me. And also like to be able to show up and be like, we'll figure it out. Is like, you know, the experience of showing up to be JC clerk on the fir- very first day that I was doing that. And I had to do something very difficult. I had to like expel my friend. And you didn't die. It's like really hard. And I did, you know, and then you just figure that out as you're going. Yeah. And I was like, I can figure this out. But this whole thing of like, I'm the director. I'm so important. Like, that's just bullshit. It's like everybody's important. And that's from, I think, a mindset that I just, yeah, I went to a school where a five-year-old's vote counted just as much as the founder of the school's vote because no one person is more important to a community. You sound, yeah, you, you describe me walking into the situation with all these people with professional accolades and so forth. It sounds like you're talking about being an office brat. That, yeah, they have this thing, but I'm here. I'm, I'm just part of this, figuring it out too. 
feel like it, I mean, it's, I've gotten used to it now. It was big. <laughs> I guess I just like wasn't aware because I just have been doing things that when I started to do these playwriting groups or whatever, and people would go around and introduce themselves and be like, I just got out of Brown graduate program or like I'm out of Yale and da da da. Like then I started to be like, oh wow. Like just the fact that that was the overwhelming thing and not, it doesn't make me insecure, but it's just like, oh wow. And then I do know that like oftentimes when I'm like, I'm Nicole, I didn't go to college. Uh I didn't go to grad school. I didn't do this. I've never studied this, but we're here we are peers. It's like, it does kind of make people like the, the what? And then later as time goes on, I'm like, well, for lack of a better word, I was principal of my school for mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. And it's like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> and it's just these different things. And I, you know, I work really hard and I'm very fortunate and I have been, I continue to be very fortunate. And I'm, and I know that there are some that maybe in some world, it would be easier if I went to Yale because I'd have all those Yale connections or whatever that stuff is. But I just don't know what that what that world is. I've never operated in any of the, I, I don't know what it is. So it's fine. But like, to me, like the path that I've chosen of learning things experientially and just like diving in and just like going, 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 which is what I did in school has been super beneficial. It's why I felt like, why I didn't think twice when I, I had to apply for the job of being the director of Stockholm because the movie was optioned without me attached to direct it. So like I had to pitch myself as the director and the producers were like, I don't know, we could give it to Gus Van Sant. And I was like, mm-hmm. here's my vision. And I figured out the materials I needed and like the things I needed to understand in which to sell myself to do this. And I did it and I got the job. And then like I did the job. And again, it's like this idea of like learning isn't separate from doing. And so like, even if I had gone to school and studied all this stuff and made student films, I should still be learning on the Mm -hmm. set of any film that I'm making. But that's not part of our collective mindset of the way things. To me, there is no before learning and after learning. It's all connected. And that came from Sudbury? Yeah. In part? Of course. No, completely. Oh, completely. Okay. Yeah, completely. Because before that, you were... Before that, I'm just in the dark being like, I feel like this makes sense, but I have absolutely no evidence that anyone thinks that way or will let me operate that way in the world. And then Sudbury Valley was like, hey, over here. So you don't feel you have to be let to direct a play or movie. You don't have to be let to do stuff. You're like, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I mean, it's hard. It's especially hard as a... I had to learn all that as an adult to the extent I even know it. Well, it's hard. It's all about permission because you spend all of your growing up in the typical school format asking for permission. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. All right, now I'm going to make a big absent segue. Yeah. So to me, all of what we've been talking about is, in my mind, leadership. And leaders, not, not the guy in the corner office stuff, you know, interaction with, anyway. So the other part is the environment in this mm-hmm. podcast. And when you think environment, what do you think of, what does the environment mean to you? Uh, well, it makes me so sad now these days because mm-hmm. it's getting. She says with a smile. It's getting pushed down the toilet. I mean, I don't know. Earth, that's what I think of. Very linear thoughts when it comes to the environment. Planet Earth. When you say sad, what's the sad part? Well, I mean, we're sitting in Los Angeles now, which is like deeply on fire, just few miles that way or whatever, you know, 
And that's like really common. The environmental degradation. Yeah. Like, you know, you scroll through the news feed or whatever, you wake up in the morning. It does feel like we're at the beginning of the end of the world where it's like mudslide kills this many people here. This insane, these three hurricanes have happened at the same, are happening at the same time, which is unprecedented. And everything is destroyed and this many people are dead and without power. And meanwhile, California is on fire and this is happening, this is happening. So you're scrolling. And I think that that our like capacity for that is expanding, unfortunately. Similarly to scrolling through the newsfeed and it's like Trump did this terrible thing, Trump did this terrible thing, Trump did this sneaky thing. And our capacity for that is also expanding because it's just crazy. So I, I just want to tell the listeners that we're at Nicole's place and I guess her neighbors just turn on some Spanish music. So that's part of the decor or part of the ambiance. Yeah, it's Sunday. And uh, it's Veterans Day. So I feel like there's a frustration, well, sadness, I guess. And one of the things that I try to do with this podcast is that yeah, we're laughing. We're, we're, the listeners might not pick this up, but we're just kind of laughing because uh, who knows what's going on. Yeah, there's like some people playing. Yeah. And um, one of the points of this podcast is I want to ask people that are, I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I, I want to act, but if I act and no one else does, what differences make? And I think that the way I've been putting it lately is that the top predictor, as I understand, for someone getting solar on their house is not how much money they'll save. It's not their politics. It's not how into the environment they are. It's if their neighbor has it. And I think that a lot of people... There's some people who are in everyone's neighborhood, like Oprah, LeBron, you know, Elon. And I want to bring them, I want my podcast to bring to people that people are doing these things, even people that are on, you know, the front page people. So what I'm trying to do is have people, what I think people don't get is that there, a lot of people hold back on making a shift of acting on some environmental value, because at least in my case, I thought it was going to be really annoying and then it ended up not being annoying. And so I want people that are in other people's communities they're in a lot of people's communities to try these things out, to act on their values and share the experience so that people at home can say not to follow what that person did necessarily specifically, but to think of like, what do I care about? And is there something I could do to act on? And so I want to ask you if it's at your option, given your, what the environment means to you, how you feel about it, what you think about it when you think about it, is there something that you could do to act on that? That there's a couple of things I've, I've learned to constrict it, to constrain it. You don't have to solve all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. It can't be something, it can't be telling someone else what to do. And it has to be something you're not already doing, something measurable. So like, it can't be just like, I'll think about it or I'll be more aware. Is there anything that you might do to act on? And and by the way, it doesn't have to be forever. Well, you know, I just, um, I mean, we were talking when we were in my kitchen I use metal straws. I don't use mm. plastic straws. I try to always have like a cup with me for when I'm like out getting coffee, just because like I personally can't stop thinking about <laughs> that stuff mm. that like how many paper cups does a person use or whatever when they're grabbing coffee all the time. And, you know, I'm in this writer's room and we get lunch delivered every day and I'm using silverware instead of plastic silverware. And like, I don't drink water out of plastic water bottles, like just that, that kind of thing. And now it's funny. It's like when they bring me, when we order out drinks or whatever, like we got milkshakes the other day in the room Mm -hmm. and everybody's came with a straw, but like mine had no straw because whenever I order a drink, I put no straw Mm -hmm. in parentheses because it also bothers me. I'm not going to use the straw, but the straw shows up. And then I know that like when I'm not going to use the straw, but they're going to throw it away. You got to work to get... Yeah, for people not to do you the favor of giving you all this disposable stuff. Right. And, you know, I was saying that it does drive me kind of crazy because, like, I don't understand why anyone is using plastic silverware in the writer's room because we have silverware just a few feet away in the kitchen. But also, like, 
no judgment, you know, like mm. I'm not sitting around, but I do give them a hard time when they come into the room with water in a bottle because from the kitchen, because we also have reusable water bottles and glasses and a water filtered water bubbler. Uh-huh. So like I'll make jokes and stuff. If someone like my friend in the room came in and he had these two little water bottles. The little ones, the like eight ounce ones. You're like, that's not even enough water to make a difference in your life. And I was like, what are you doing? And so I can't remember exactly the exchange, but it ended with me taking his, I was going to the kitchen. I'm like, does anyone want anything from the kitchen? Mm-hmm. And I was like, it looks like you could use some water. And I like took the water bottles and um, everyone in the room was like, wow, okay. She's just like straight up taking his water bottles away. Uh-huh. And I came back with a glass of water for him. And so just things like that, like everyone knows that if I ask, do you need anything from the kitchen? And someone asks for water, I'm coming back with a glass of water for them or I'll refill their water bottle, but I'm not ever going to bring anyone a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. So it's just those little things, you know, and I try to remember a cloth napkin, have a cloth napkin with me. I keep like a mug and a travel cup and silverware and a reusable straw, like all in my office. And so like, I just have that and try to travel with that stuff. And again, like, yeah, the more people see it, the more it's like, oh, like I started doing it when I saw my friend Emily, the costume designer in Stockholm, where she would show up for craft services every day with silverware, a bowl, a plate and a cup. And so she never used any of that disposable craft services stuff. And I was like, right, so easy. Just Mm. bring it with you. Like, What am I doing? And so I made that switcheroo based on having her, having seen her do it. So I don't know. I have to share. I was just at this this big conference called Summit in L.A. and, And ask anyone there, how are you in the environment? They're like, oh, I'm very aware. I'm, you know, way ahead of the curve on this one. And maybe they are relative to other Americans. I don't know, which is like about as low a bar as you can set for environmental action. And there's all this disposable stuff, all this packaged food being given out. And so everyone's taken. I'm like, what can I do? How can I avoid it? I'm like, I haven't got any. And you know, I took the train out here. So I had to pack three days worth of food in my, that I cooked. So I have all this Tupperware. And the Tupperware, which I have from before I start all this packaging stuff. So I, I'm not going to throw it out. So I start going to these things, bringing my Tupperware with me. And everyone's like, did you bring your lunch with you? Oh, no, I'm no, just the container. So I don't have to get these other containers. And then they're kind of like, oh. <laughs> yeah, my friend Mandy brings uh, her and my friend Dylan. They live on an island of like, I think the year-round residents are 11 people. But like you pay $10 for every bag of trash that you mm. have picked up. So they're very reuse, reduce. And so like when we go out to a restaurant or something when they're on the mainland, they bring Tupperware for the leftovers instead of asking for a box. And like, again, like you just see someone do that, you're like, right, what's, I can just grab from home. Like I don't need to just be asking for boxes. I don't drive and I don't have a car. So it'd be easier if I could keep those things in a car and Mm. be like, oh, right. I have a thing in the car, but also I don't have a car or no carbon no carbon footprint there. And I remember when the environment started getting like cool to talk about being at the Tribeca Film Festival like many years ago with Eric actually. And people were asking me about or somehow it came up that I didn't have my license and I'd never driven a car and everyone was like, whoa. And for the first time ever, they were like, that's so cool. Uh-huh. Like your carbon footprint's like so small. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the only time in my whole life that anyone's ever thought it was cool that I've never mm-hmm. had my license. So that was a funny turning point where I was like, oh, the environment's getting cool now. So I'm going to persist a little bit here, partly because it is more challenging for people who have made that shift. On the one hand, on the other hand, I want people to see, I believe that, how to put it? I want to push a little bit to see if there's something that really I don't want people at home to think like, good, I'm there. Because a lot of people who think like I'm there, there's a long way to go. But I'm putting myself in that group, certainly. And so is there anything that comes to mind? 
that well, a lot of people, I think, also have something in the back of their mind. They're like, oh, I could do X. And this is like a nice excuse to kind of try it out. On. You just have to like keep going. Like, you know, I'm constantly like also recently I started. I've never been so paper towel free home or whatever. So that's cool. It's more laundry, but whatever. And then also just I started using um, not I, I what that I was buying the stuff. I, I don't like Ziploc bags and I don't like saran wrap and I don't like tinfoil. So to figure out what are the alternatives to uh-huh. that, like for a while I was just wrapping things in my cloth napkins and like that was kind of a, bum, a bummer. It's like things get crumbs everywhere or whatever. But now there's just like so many things like that wax. The bees wrap? Yeah, the bees wrap. So good. One of my guests just did that as one of her things. Yeah, yeah. it's great. And the bees wrap and then the those washable Ziploc, they're not Ziploc. But those washable zippered pouches for snacks and sandwiches and stuff. So I have those and that's great, which is funny because it's not like it's replacing those things for me because I wasn't, I was like not using saran wrap and tinfoil before. But when I was using saran wrap, I used to, and tinfoil, I used to wash it and dry it and use it more than once. Yeah. Because it does feel, um, once you get out of the mindset, like I just had this when you kind of come into your own mind, just being like, wow, I can't believe someone because like I grew up in the 80s or whatever and just use a Ziploc bag once and then throw it away like that's crazy and it takes a little while to kind of get into your head like that's crazy even though like that's what I've seen over and over again my dad is more hippy dippy like my mom's really into reusable straws and cups and stuff now but I think is still like a big paper towel user and a big tinfoil user or whatever but just those things it's just like reevaluating what you're used to and being like oh actually the crazy thing is using a plastic bag once and throwing it away is really 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 crazy and just yeah like if something's in styrofoam if someone's if the only option is styrofoam then I say no thank you like if the if the, they only have styrofoam cups or whatever and I don't have my cup with me then like I'll get a drink somewhere else like I just don't want any of that and then also using biodegradable dish soap and laundry detergent just all that stuff that you don't think about once it leaves your house, kind of, but that actually it's going down in the drains and into everything. It's so, so It's so refreshing to talk to someone that like this is like normal because the people I'm staying with, they're like, when you're in that mode of just like, I don't know, I throw it out and it's gone. Then I look weird because I'm like, you know, for me to ask like, do you have compost, you know, do you have composting? They're like, what? And how could I? Yeah, the modes are not, there's friction between them. And for the past this trip has basically been, except for when I was at Patagonia's headquarters, it's basically been people like, why are you making this difficult? I'm like, yeah, I'm making your thing difficult. You're making mine difficult. But both of us agree that we don't want the world to go in the direction that what you're doing brings it. And it's refreshing to talk to someone like, yeah, it's weird to throw stuff away all the time. So, yeah. It is. I mean, and I still have a lot to, you know, I want to get into, like when I go grocery shopping, I'm not, like, I don't put pla- apples in a plastic bag in order to bring them. You know what I mean? I'm just like, I got three apples. I think we can fit this on the <laughs> way container without having to, like, having grouped them in a thing. But I do know that, like, I want to get better about packaging, trying to buy things more in bulk or whatever so that I'm not throwing away. Yeah, this morning when I was, I'm staying at a friend's and they were going to bring me to go shopping because I'm going to make them do tonight. And so I'm going around their apartment and, like, they had some apples in a bag. And I was like, oh, good. We can use that bag. And like, for what? I'm like, to put the bulk stuff in. They're like, look at me confused. And I look at, there's some other apples in a different bag, but that one they'd ripped open. So I couldn't use that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they have all these bags and they just throw them out. Well, when did you start thinking about this stuff? Because. Oh, like four years ago is when, and then before that, I didn't care either. You know, 
a lot of the emotion that I feel in this frustration, like how can you blah, 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 exasperation is really me looking at myself for how long that I knew what I was doing. I would choose, I'm going to throw this out. I'm going to buy this thing that I know is polluting. And I, instead of doing something about it, I would just think this makes me feel guilty. I'll plan. And that planning felt like it was doing something, but I actually would keep doing the same behavior. Mm-hmm. And the earth doesn't respond to my thoughts. It responds to my behavior. My thoughts might change my behavior to some degree, but they weren't in this case. And so I would think about that guilt and that helplessness that I would maintain in my life instead of just turning and facing what I was doing. And now, and the result is like, it's made my life by my standards better in virtually every measurable difference. I'm curious with the, the bulk stuff. Is there something there that, you, that like you've been thinking of doing that you might be able to, this might be a place where you could do something. I just have to get more mindful about like when I'm grocery shopping. Cause usually what just happens is I'm like very tired when I get out of work and then I'm like, oh crap, I don't have anything for dinner. And I like swing past the grocery store just that doesn't have that option. I just like grab whatever I can for that night. And then it's like also mostly I'm eating like two meals a day at work. I eat breakfast and lunch at work. And then so I just need to get more mindful but like you know these tv jobs are for 20 weeks at a time or whatever and then i'm off and then i'm back in a world where i can spend time like thinking being like i'm gonna go to the farmer's market today but like and do those things and yeah i'm just like not in the space where i plan ahead but i'll get back there but there's always improvement i just got um dryer balls those like wool balls instead of dryer sheets. Not that I was, again, not that I was using dryer sheets before, oh. but it's like you just put a little essential oil on it if you want it to like smell nice or otherwise you can just leave them plain and then they do exactly what dryer sheets do, which is like help things not stick together because they're like bouncing around the dryer. It's like, oh, cool. I don't know. Just like there's always something else to do. But, you know, I consider it a failure if like I like my recycling thing that I bring downstairs to be full, but the trash thing for the same amount of time to be very empty. So that's always the goal. If I had a yard, I would compost, Mm -hmm. but I don't. My dad does. But yeah, I don't know. There's always something else to do and to get better at. So at this stage, I usually ask if there's a SMART goal that could be attached to any of these things. Do you know the the acronym? Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-based. I mean, that would be my, I think, the bulk thing, which is like just go with my resealable zip bags or whatever and just be getting all of the, the grains and stuff in that. So like, that's like the next step is just be more mindful of that and like plan ahead better. What I'd like to do is to have people in a second time sharing how that experience was. All right. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because most people haven't thought it through and haven't like, you're just like, this is normal. Of course, I'm going to, whether you ask me to or not, I'm going to find the next thing, the next thing, the next thing anyway. So it's almost superfluous for me to do it because you were going to do something anyway. And I suspect that the, experience each time is its own unique experience of doing something new and different but it sounds like each time you do it you like it and you want to do the next thing yeah i mean i don't know you do yeah you do one thing and then you're like oh what else can i do also just to be looking at things like when i see things out in the world i'm like oh like look the dryer balls or whatever i was like Mm -hmm. oh yeah i'll get those or the uh i forget where i first saw the bees wrap but yeah. It's funny with that one. I was interviewing this woman and she was like trying to figure out how to, she has these events where she brings sandwiches for people and she was wrapping them in plastic. And then totally by chance, I'm talking to someone else and she's like, oh, I'm trying to make, the, you can make these beeswax things on your own. And she was talking about that. I was like, wait, there's something you can wrap sandwiches in? And I wrote Dawn and I was like, oh, here's this thing. And she started doing it. All right. So 
Why don't we leave it at this? If we have an opportunity to talk a second time, if something comes up and you want to share, then I, mean, I invite you back anytime, actually. If, if like something about this podcast is like, oh, I should put this on Josh's podcast or something <laughs> like that, then I, I leave you an open invitation oh, you. to be a guest anytime. And I won't like stick a specific thing on or be like, we won't have a specific thing that, that the next episode would be about because I do that with a lot of others. And uh, I'd like to close with two questions. Is there anything I didn't ask that's worth bringing up? And the others, is there anything to the listeners that you'd want to say directly to them? Oh, gosh. What great questions. Well, you said you wanted to ask about Eric. Yeah. So. Oh, man. I mean, the first, there's the whole process of you getting, you were one out of, no, you were one of three out of thousands. Yeah. One of three women and they had three men as well. So it's a big process to get in. And then there's working with the guy. And then there's the afterward of like what that, how that affects you later on. And I don't even know where to begin because- a lot of this show is about hustling, of contacting people who are like well-known and experienced. I'm learning way more than I expected. Um, I can try to like give a condensed blow by blow, which is that I was very into Eric's work. I was doing solo shows, writing and performing in my own one-woman shows in what Massachusetts. Work, right? Already? <laughs> yes, so many words. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I, I don't know. Like um, doing well up in Framingham, up in uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yes. And um, and then also did the first like big time play I did um, was Suburbia, which was written by him. Mm-hmm. I played the character of Suze. and so I was like very aware of his work, really into it. And then in like I think two thousand three, I got wind that he was doing this residency at Atlantic Center for the Arts, so Florida. in Florida, oh. New Smyrna Beach, and so I. Or New Smyrna, I don't know. So I sent in an application, got asked to do an interview. I did the interview and I got one of the three female slots and went and did this month-long residency. Just a side note about how amazing my small town is, is that I needed money to be able to like pay my rent for that. I'd never done anything like this. And so to like leave for a month and airfare and, you know, I was like a working artist. I didn't have like a ton of money mm-hmm. and my like, partner at the time like helped organize this thing in the town where the town put on like the show because I was like doing this and like it was very it's a wonderful life and raised all of the money for me to be able to go and do this thing which was quite amazing and so I went and I was running a theater company at the time with Greg my then partner and and who's still a very good friend of mine and so when we were at the residency he had five writers and six actors and like we were doing a lot of stuff and it was just like slightly chaotic the schedule and because I'm judicial clerk and because I was running a theater company and because I just see the way a system needs improvement and want to improve it, I was like, let's do it this way. And so I put together a schedule, a rotating schedule of who would use the theater when and what would be happening in other spaces and then allotted him writing time. And then instead of all of us trying to get in touch with him to get things, I was like, at lunch, everyone can check in with me about what they need from you. And then I'll check in with you after dinner. And so we'll just streamline it to give him as much writing time as possible because he was writing a play for us to be in. So that's what happened. And then Eric ended up asking me to move to New York and be his assistant. This is... Pause for a second. This is leadership. Yes. This is exactly leadership. This is what I call the grunt model of leadership, which is my model is always Martin Luther King trying to get people not to take the bus when there's a boycott, when no one has any expectation that this is going to be some future Nobel Prize winner, no expectation there's going to be some Civil Rights Act a decade in the future. And I looked it up. Three months out of the year, they typically get 100 degree weather and people had to wear suits back then mm-hmm. and it's going to be humid. And that's how you become a leader. People think it's like, I keep talking to people about doing environmental things and they say, I've got to get, I got to become a leader and I got to go off and like work at McKinsey or something like that, Mm -hmm. which is following. And 
what you did was you stepped up and you did the work that had to be done working with other people. And you became, I think you merged in a leadership role. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I mean, Eric's also from Massachusetts. We really vibed. And yeah, there was no, like, I'm just into <laughs> positive administration where it's like, okay, it's chaotic. And like, we're not getting what we need and we're not getting the time we want. And we're also wasting a lot of time trying to figure this out. I'll do it. Like, uh-huh. this makes no sense. Like, I'll, I'll do it. I love being in charge of things and having a voice. I love having a say. And I also love providing a service for other people. I love making an experience better for somebody else. So that just combined all of those things. And then I was also the only person in the acting realm that had been accepted to the residency that wasn't in New York or Los Angeles. I was just in this small Massachusetts town. He was like, what are you doing? Move mm-hmm. to New York. And so I moved to New York to work as his assistant and then worked for him for five years and really learned a lot from his work ethic. He was like one of my greatest teachers, but he didn't know he was teaching me, you know? And so it's just absorbing his work ethic, his moods, his like worldview, partially through osmosis, partially like truly actively by being very engaged in that with him. And then he was doing a lot of work, a lot of shows and stuff while I was there. And we worked very closely together and I really learned how to write from just being around him and being immersed in his work. But then I like confessed to him one day when we were up at Vassar at New York Stage and Film to see his show happen there one plus one. I was like, I wrote a play. Uh It was 2008. And he was like, what? And he read it and it's very different from his work. And he was very surprised and was just like, and I, you know, pointed out it's one of the things that makes him such a great teacher is that my work isn't anything like his. And yet he is the person who helped teach how, like, helped me learn how to do that and make that work. So learning the work ethic was the valuable, was, that was the main thing. The work ethic, the, the perseverance, but also just, like, watching him write and watching things change, seeing workshops and early readings of things, and then final drafts and performances of stuff. Like, One Plus One, for example, which was a play that I saw happen as, like, just, like, a very informal reading around the office and then move into, like, a full production at New York Stage and Film. So I got to, that was my first time kind of seeing, like, that process. And then they did an updated version of Suburbia, like with cell phones and about the current political climate at that time. And so watching those adaptations happen, just like, just kind of, which right. And then also that he just wanted to write things that he wanted to be in and wanted to write things for his friends. And so like, that's how I look for it. What do I want to watch basically? And that's how I learned to write. And then also like the economy of like his plays, like all happen on like one set basically. And so, so do mine. Is it fair to say you apprenticed with a master and that led you on a path to mastery? I mean, I don't know if if we ever get there. I mean, I don't know what mastery is, but sure. Yeah. I mean, like he also still like reads early drafts of my stuff, comes to readings of things. And it's funny we joke now is that like, he was my mentor for so many years and now we're just competing for the same slots at Uh theaters. But, you know, both of us have taken like a break from theater in that I've been writing for television and film and he's been starring in television and film. So we're on theater hiatus. But yeah, it's like, you know, again, learn through doing. I just like wanted to do that. I, when I was working with Eric, I, he's also one of the greatest directors I've worked with, though he doesn't count himself as a director. But of course, his wife, Joe Bonnie, is one of the greatest living directors. She directed an early workshop of Stockholm and I love her. I am so grateful for them in my life. But meeting Eric at the Atlantic Center, I just like identified him right away as someone I could learn a lot from and who I could also, again, like streamline certain experiences for. Like I I could anticipate and understand what he needed out of a situation and help provide it. 
what you just described about, oh, I saw this guy, I wanted to meet him, yeah, I could work with him, he could work with me, feels like those are the skills you learn in Sudbury of that is a human being, I'm a human being, mm-hmm. the authority stuff is not, so that's not relevant. It's And then you just contact them. Yeah. Or you, yeah, like when I was leaving the residency, I just like had like an emotional goodbye with him and then I was like, Ugh, I don't want us to like never talk again. Mm-hmm. And so we just started emailing and that's how he ended up offering me the job as his assistant. It's, and to his credit, at the moment that he offered me that job, he didn't really need an assistant, but he did see that I needed something to bring me out of where I was. It feels like apprenticeship. Yeah. And to me, vocation, the word vocation in today's world usually means like you're going to become a mechanic or a nurse or something where it means like it's a labor, you're learning how to do some labor. But the original voca, it means to call. It's, it's from a calling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a big difference between what, how we teach how children learn and how adults learn because apprenticeship is different than just play. And I think a main thing that you, that we want is to discover our passions, unearth them and have a mix of what we love. And also, as you say, helping others, serving others is a major piece of it. I think that's one of the most important, the, the more effective a leader is, the more I find that they are in service of others. And so if you find that nice mix of what you're passionate about and what other people value from you or what helps other people, then you look for a master or someone that you can learn, people who know more than, you know, someone that you can learn from to learn the ropes. But the best, like, version of those relationships are reciprocal, you know? Just like, you know, sometimes people think being a leader means that, like, the people are in service of you, but Mm. it's actually the opposite. So, like, you're a good leader means you're in service of the people. And, like, a great apprenticeship or a mentor-mentee relationship is that, like, we... It, it was a reciprocal relationship. Like I got things from our relationship and learned things, and so did he. And so that's what made it. So, I, mean, I think it's one of the reasons why we're still so close. Mm-hmm. And again, like I don't believe in hierarchies, so I don't know. Have you yet had someone come to you in the way that you approached him, or that you came to him? Have you become the Bogosian first? <laughs> I try to like help and reach out, and like I'll engage with anyone who has like questions on my email, like when I have time and stuff. I just am not in a place yet where I'm like, yeah, come in and like work on my archives. Like I don't have that kind of like spillover mm-hmm. kind of thing. Someday maybe, and I'd like that. But yeah, I meet young people all the time and still have like former students who sometimes are like, wait, is, my, is that movie written and directed by my old theater teacher from Newport, Massachusetts? And I'll get an email where I ask question. And if I have time, I love to engage and help in any way that I can. I am often still just like in the grind. So I don't have as much time for that as I'd like. But Any big projects coming up you can share? <sighs> well, let's see. I don't know. I'm writing on season two of YouTube's Impulse right now. So that's cool. So we're in the midst of that. And I like attached some movie stars to a movie that I wrote a little while ago. And so now we're just trying to like work out the scheduling. I don't want to say, I don't want to jinx it. You know, plus nothing's ever real until it's not. People drop out of things a day. yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, moving and shaking, I have some projects in here and like looking forward to getting out of the talk. Page. I got some projects going on. I got some stars going on. I don't want well, to I'm going to go back to New York and just try to do some more writing. I'd love to write another play. I'm very, very hungry for the theater. I've been away from it for too long, but it's hard to find the time to do that when you're trying to pay your rent, mm-hmm. um, you know, but yeah, working on some movie scripts, movie stuff. I sold a television show, like an original show of mine, and I'm waiting to hear if it's going to go to a pilot. So I don't know. It's really exciting. Thank you for sharing. Any, any, I can keep asking questions for a long time, but any message directed to the listeners 
Oh, I don't know. About what? <laughs> education, leadership. I mean, here are the things that I heard. It was education, leadership, self-expression through the arts. Well, and like rebellion. the terms of, <laughs> in terms of education or rebellion even, like I guess to the parents out in the world and to the educators out in the world, I would love for them to just listen to kids more, trust kids, like understand that they are becoming, they are self-possessed in one way or another, always. And, you know, graduating from high school doesn't, like, lift some magic veil where you're totally different and, like, Mm -hmm. ready for things. Like, you're a person always. And so I just think that, like, yeah, if someone is rebelling, engage with them about that instead of just trying to stop them from doing it. And don't always look at it as a problem because maybe it's not a problem. And so you just shift the way you're engaging with it and then voila, you've shifted from having a troubled kid to having a non-conformist free thinker that you can engage with in a different way. It doesn't. It's not about stopping people from rebelling. It's about figuring out how to make that productive for everyone. So that's really easy to do if you just, it's just, you got to trust that in some way everything that your kid is doing whether it's your student or your child is coming from a place of self-expression they're trying to understand themselves or the world in a different way and so it's not about squashing that behavior it's about shifting that into something that thrives and i wish that that was a practice that more people had nicole Beckwith, thank you very much thank you This conversation was beautiful to me, which is part of why I indulged in letting it go so long. I relived trials and things from my childhood that at the time I couldn't stand, but that this conversation helped fall into place. I don't know if self-directed learning would work for me, but I would love to have tried. Nicole describing democracy in action made me think about the authoritarian schooling that I suffered. Don't get me wrong. I love school. I did very well. I reached the pinnacle of education, a PhD in physics at an Ivy League school. And I teach now at NYU, which is an elite school. But I do my best, and I believe I succeed in not teaching through authoritarian methods. It's project-based learning. I don't give tests. You can read my blog about my teaching style. If you've reached this far, you found it fascinating too. I recommend following the link that I put in the write-up to my page of links to self-directed learning. I found it fascinating. It's one of the most important things that I've read in a long time. Ask anyone what their best experiences of their childhood are. I guarantee no one will say it was something in the classroom. Even if you ask them where you learn the most, it's not going to be something in the classroom. Self-directed learning has changed my view of education more than anything that has before. As an aside, after this conversation with Nicole, we were in Silver Lake, which is where she's working on her latest Hollywood project. And I walked around Silver Lake to see the neighborhood. And I went to all these taco stands and I kept asking, can you give me a taco without packaging? And none of them would. They all insisted on putting it on paper plates or styrofoam. So I missed out on Silver Lake tacos. feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast 
to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.